0: You're listening to Software Enscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Richard Crowley, who led operations engineering at Slack from when they were 20 employees to 20,000 employees. We get into some of the surprising lessons he learned from this experience, beyond just the usual things are harder at scale, and how these lessons led to the project he's working on now, a tool which helps teams manage their infrastructure from an angle I never would have guessed. Software enscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red NoRedInc. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at NoRedInc.com slash jobs. And now, Scaling Slack's Infrastructure. Okay, Richard, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, of all the people I know personally, you have the most direct experience working on, and I guess influencing really large infrastructure projects. I'm specifically talking here about Slack. Slack does more traffic than, I don't know, most services out there. It's definitely like top 1% in terms of like how much traffic goes through the system. So something I've always wondered is just what's different about managing infrastructure at that scale or like what comes to mind as as being different compared to
1: dealing with infrastructure at like, you know, much smaller scale, like orders of magnitude smaller. There were two aspects of the scale of Slack that were challenging as compared to running a, you know, a small or a medium-sized website. And that is both the absolute size that it got to, as well as the, the pace at which we got there. So the, the absolute size, everybody knows there should be automation for this, that, and the other thing. And it's taken as a sort of point of pride to automate oneself out of a job. But what I found over and over and over again was that not only was that automation more than just a point of pride, there was an absolute requirement. When you have 10,000 machines, you cannot as a human being or an army of human beings do anything manually. It has to be automated, whether that's by instance replacement, which is in my mind, sort of the gold standard of how you use the cloud really effectively, or it's just good tooling that's that's pushing and pulling and downloading packages and, and orchestrating whatever administrative tasks you need, whether it's deploys or emergency changes, you can't do that all by hand. But then there's also the scaling up quickly, where not only did you have the urgent need to have tooling around all the the operational processes, emergency and routine, but you had this sort of demon on your shoulder waiting to just hit a limit at any moment and just decide today is going to be the day that something, some resource is exhausted or something tips over the edge and you're into chaos. And many of those things were predictable. You know, you can watch your IO demands, you can watch CPU usage, but then there's certain things that are surprising. Like long, long ago, in the earliest days of Slack, we were in what Amazon called EC2 Classic. That was the pre-VPC networking. Early days, like what What year would this be? This was 2014. Okay, yeah, that is early days. <laughs> and one of the things about EC2 Classic as compared to VPC is you just don't get as much control over the network. And that's well-documented and understood. One of the things that's less well-understood and pretty much completely undocumented is that there's a really hard 50,000 packets per second limit on the NIC on all of the instances. And so when you hit that, as we did between web servers and what we called the main database, which was the database cluster that only turned your username, email address into what team you were on to then direct you to that team's database shard, we hit this packet per second limit and had no idea that that was coming. And so had a pretty serious scramble to figure out how to alleviate that load by vertically partitioning that database as well as adding memcache in in retrospect in a hurry. And we sort of paid for some of those decisions for, for quite a while later as we continue to get better at using memcache. And that kind of scale comes at you without warning unless somebody has seen it before. Yeah, I remember you telling me at, at the time about like how much
0: just like ghost code you were writing to solve problems that normally you would like to have some advance warning that you were going to need to solve those problems. And it was more like, okay, no, this is like, this is an emergency. And it's emergency and it needs to be
1: automated. So that precise idea, that juxtaposition of emergencies and automation to deal with scale is is actually why, in a very nice nutshell, the philosophy that I kind of laid down for my team, and incidentally, I led operations engineering at Slack from when it was about 20 employees to when it was about 2200 employees, eventually ejecting from people management responsibilities, but that's neither here nor there. So one of the things I believe strongly then and believe more strongly now is that the size of your automation is really important that if you build a tool that does absolutely everything that your service needs to accomplish a task like to like to scale up or to do a deploy or to bootstrap itself from nothing, as one sort of monolithic piece of automation, you will never be able to use any of that tooling in an incident. So the tooling has to be a composition of smaller pieces, very Unix philosophy, small pieces, loosely joined, composable, so that your usual standard operating procedure might be half a dozen steps using half a dozen tools that you've written and tested and really understand knowing that in an incident response case, you might need four of them and you might need to give them slightly different parameters and you might need to do them in a different order or interleave a new tool that you've written ad hoc during the incident. But at least that tool could be small and understandable and something that you can cope with as frazzled incident responding individuals. And that like the right size of automation was such a huge important part of being able to cope with changing demands as we scaled up, as well as the, just the outright demands of when there's an incident at enormous scale. Sometimes it's not scale's fault. Sometimes it's, we wrote bad software. And sometimes it's a whole availability zone goes down or a whole you know, network backbone goes down or a whole one of our remote regions becomes unavailable. And all of those things have slightly different demands, which meant that we composed our tools slightly differently to respond to them.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, so usually when I hear people talk about automation, they're they're not usually thinking about incident response or at least not talking about it. Maybe maybe they're thinking about it in the back of their head and I don't know about it, but the conversations I hear about automation are more about efficiency and like throughput and not wasting programmer time or like, you know, being efficient in terms of programmer time and not so much about incident response, which is an interesting concept because I definitely think that when I look at like, what does it mean to be prepared for incident response? Usually what I think of is like playbooks, this stuff like you've written down scripts. And when I say scripts, I don't mean software. I mean, I mean like, you know, order, order of steps for humans to go through and like, if this, then, then do that. And it sounds like, like run books. Yeah. Run books. That's a, I guess a, yeah, I heard a, a term I've heard too, but that's like, it sounds like that's really kind of inadequate when you get to a certain scale, because just the, the number of buttons you would have to press times the number of instances you would have to press on it on just, just stops working. And so you, you just have to have these scripts in the software sense that you can run in addition that do one thing. And yeah, that's really interesting.
1: I mean, you need a variety of things. Like you need some variation. And I don't mean it literally has to be this. But like some variation of SSH in a for loop is a building block for a lot of emergency tooling. And understanding the exact dependencies of that SSH in a for loop is really important. Like if EC2's API is down and your SSH in a for loop variant depends entirely on that, you have a vulnerability to that situation. You know, if if the EC2 API is part of it, but there's a way to go around and maybe get that information from Chef or Terraform or some other inventory service, then you you have options, you have flexibility being able to still use that tool even in unexpected circumstances
0: that's yeah that makes sense so and i would guess that another part of that is when i think ssh in a for loop like the the most obvious way to do that would be to literally go through every single instance in your list and and run exactly the same command on them but i would imagine that there are some scenarios where you kind of want to be a little bit more cautious than that and say like okay well First run this on a couple of them and then let's pause and and see how they do. And then if that works out, okay, then roll it out to more of them and, and so on and so forth.
1: That's absolutely true. And it's funny to me looking back at the progression of Slack and not even in emergency situations, but in regular everyday deploy situations where we made a conscious shift from the imperative of making deploys as fast as they could possibly be limited by nothing but the speed of light to flash the new code to as many hundreds or thousands or whatever of instances as we could so that we could deploy 130 times a day. And eventually that pace and that immediacy of change caught up with us and we started losing quality. We started having reliability problems that were no other way to put it, self-inflicted. And there's not a, not a finger to point at any individual or any team or anything else. It's just that rate of change that pace of development was destabilizing so we started to change the way we did deploys to consciously slow things down and did exactly what you just said we made deploys go on a smooth ramp up from one percent of traffic up to everybody and eventually they got very clever with how things were pipelined and so we got at the low point we were doing a very small number of deploys a day to let this ramp up sort of happen and these tools congeal. But now I've heard that they're back to doing dozens or maybe hundreds of deploys a day while still ramping things up very smoothly so that there's an opportunity to say stop the line when a problem is detected on 15% of traffic instead of 100% of traffic.
0: So it's like you you you're still doing the deploys, but the deploys are sort of going to a queue. And then the queue is like, oh, okay, we'll we'll gradually roll this out automatically. And then if there's problems, then we'll we'll roll back or or <laughs>
1: pause deploys altogether. And that that insight, seeing that play out in in real time and all the the stress that it caused is, is actually one of the things that I've carried forward with me post-Slack is that reliability can mean moving very quickly and being agile in your ability to adapt to a changing world and make a corrective action quickly it can also mean purposely slowing down to develop your confidence in a change to know that it's going to work before it doesn't work for everyone all at once
0: yeah one of the things that that's striking to me that's different about infrastructure development versus application development is that for lack of a better term it seems like with application development there's a much better story around, I'm going to use the term unit testing, but really what I mean is like testing outside of production, I guess, like testing on your local machine and having confidence that the same thing's going to happen after you deploy it. Like you gave the example of like an availability zone being down. How do you test your infrastructure on your local machine and simulate that an availability zone is down? Are there tools that do that you know, effectively? No. <laughs> right. And even if there were, how many variables like that are there out there? That, like, of things that can go wrong in a the deploy. There's <laughs> the numbers enormous.
1: There are lots. And at the extreme unifying end of the spectrum, there's nothing like testing in production. And I don't mean to say that cavalierly, but I definitely put myself in the camp of load tests being at best educational, but never proof. And having a staging environment, you should absolutely strive for your staging and development environments to be as. Closely mimicking production as possible, because that's how you develop the most confidence that changes you make there are going to work the same way in production. But even still, the data is different. The traffic is different. The usually, unless you're a very small app or a very spendy development team, the size of the infrastructure is different as well. And that all introduces variables that you sort of can't control within the bounds of running a profitable business. So, what I personally feel is, is necessary with infrastructure testing and, and developing confidence in infrastructure changes is having the application test suite, the application's notion of acceptable performance, acceptable functionality be my guiding star. So I don't tend to write tests for Terraform code directly. I don't tend to write tests... Back when I wrote puppet or chef, I didn't tend to write tests for that. instead, I would get the environment up running and complete and healthy and run the application tests against it and I have done this for a long time, but I, I feel like i I got my my real world proof that this is a reasonable strategy from something that we tried at Slack, which is for reasons that are irrelevant, we were interested in using GCP a little bit and Slack is was at the time, and I believe still is, entirely hosted in AWS. GCP had a couple of regions, I think Iowa and Brussels, which were interesting to us geographically because they would alleviate some of the load on London and on Virginia and on Portland that were oversubscribed. And so one of those regions failing caused a huge, huge amount of reconnect traffic, and it was, it was taxing and stressful on Slack's web tier. So we wanted more regions to make all the regions smaller. So we run Slack's Edge, which is where you connect your WebSocket. We run this in GCP in these couple of regions, and everything's going well. The people who built it, I think, had a lot of rethink and parameterization and generalization in our code to do to make it work with Google's APIs for provisioning infrastructure. But the software run, because GCE and EC2 are both Linux ABI as a service, if you want to really be dismissive of them. The problem we encountered pretty quickly is that that's not the whole story, because while it is Linux ABI as a service, they also have a lot of their own opinions and leanings in terms of how the network works. And that's really that's the big sort of unspecified part of it. And what we found is that in GCP, you just couldn't keep very many TCP connections open for a long time to a single GCE instance. and That's not inherently a bad thing. This is not a story about Google Cloud being bad. This is a story about how when Google designed their network, one of the things it seems they believed is that a TCP connection is an optimization. And so if you don't have one, you just make a new one and it should be cheap and it should be no big deal. And so it wasn't really ever a problem if you're building a big uh, stubby or gRPC kind of service because they didn't need that. It It was an optimization. At Slack having a TCP connection and therefore a websocket was assumed to be as long lived as the client wanted it to be and so creating new ones was somewhat expensive especially for large teams. So we just simply couldn't have these GCE instances however geographically advantageous they were, we couldn't have them resetting TCP connections all the time and causing people to have to download 30 megabytes worth of metadata as they were reestablishing a new one. So while it worked it didn't. And the only way we knew that was the applications notion of healthy functioning. We could never have known that with infrastructure level tests.
0: Yeah. And this, this brings into, like, reminds me of like another aspect that's sort of different about infrastructure or trying to test infrastructure versus applications. Actually, two examples that you gave both feed into this. There's an element of time and also of resource constraints that usually, again, during application tests, usually kind of tend not to assume are going to be problems. So like the 50,000 packets per second limit. A, again, starting with who would think to test that? Like, hey, what if past a certain number of packets per second, you know, we we get cut off. But B, let's say that you wrote a test for that. Why would you pick 50,000? I mean, why would you, like, if you're running your tests locally, imagine trying to, you know, have that much scale that you're like on your local machine simulating 50,000 packets per second. Why would you do that? And also, if you are doing that, is that simulation going to be well these are just dumb packets these are not real application packets and if you're trying to get to 50,000 packets per second on your local machine with your application like how much actual compute do you have to use to run these tests on top of which there's the element of time which is the second thing that that your comment just reminded me of like this is something where you run your tests your tcp sockets are totally available are you going to think? To, let's say the timeout is like a day or something. Are you going to run your test for a day before finding out if the TCP sockets turn out to get you know automatically killed after a day? It just seems like so so many of these things. I don't. I hesitate to say something is outright infeasible in software, but this is it. Definitely is plausible that it's just in. It's actually infeasible to locally test infrastructure changes. I, I think that's like a very plausible thing.
1: I tend to agree that it is, and I, and I personally I test infrastructure changes actually in AWS. So I I really don't ever mock the AWS APIs for any significant purpose because knowing that something fits together, you know, that the APIs will work is signal. And that's that's valuable. But I write most of my software today in Go and I get most of that benefit from the static type system. And what's beyond the confidence that i need beyond is that it actually works in aws.
0: and the point is that like that's sort of table stakes is that the apis fit together. and like in an application in a lot of cases once you get things to fit together the number of potential things that can go wrong drops off a cliff. but an in infrastructure it's like no we're just getting started. <laughs> there's all all sorts of things that can go wrong even if the types fit fit together.
1: that's why the logs metrics the ability to observe what's happening in production is so critically important and that is for the performance of the functions that query your databases in your application down to the the closeness you are to the AWS limit on how many of the type of EC2 instance you use you're allowed to have. All of that is relevant context in a production application that is functioning and that is scaling uh, because any of those kinds of limits where something becomes slow, something blows out of memory, something hits a limit, are all ways you can break your website. And I was going to follow by saying that being aware of all of those things and being able to understand quickly what is going on and sort of have agency to be able to fix it is a big part of the way I try to help folks build infrastructure today.
0: You mentioned like a, like observability. I, I don't know, remember if you used the word or not, but um, that's certainly like kind of a hot topic in infrastructure world right now. Kind of a buzzword that's like supposed to mean something other than just logs and metrics and monitoring. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that, that topic.
1: The definition of the word is a, a property of systems. A system is observable if you can infer the internal state of the system by only looking at its outputs. Like it's a control theory, engineering kind of term. And it applies really directly to what we're doing. Old coworker of mine from way back when I worked at Flickr. He's not old. We worked together a long time ago. Named John Allspaw has a really lovely explanation of how everyone has a model of the system in their head, and what's below the line, what's below that model is reality, but you can never actually see all of it. You can only get more and more information out of it to refine your model, and that model is sometimes specific to a situation or an application or something. But the better we can via a system's outputs, and that output really is logs, metrics, structured data outputs, we can infer more and more about the internal state of the system and why it might be suboptimal. So the the way that a lot of the tools that call themselves part of observability tool chains, and I certainly put honeycomb head and shoulders above the rest as, as a, a user experience for these kinds of tools is that there's structure to as much data as you want to throw in there. And that there's a sort of correlation between the layers of the stack. So it's really frustrating to go to a web server and say, that's a lot of CPU, something must be wrong. And then you're stuck. It's really, really powerful to go to a system that can tell you this request You know, this is a histogram of request response times. Slice it down to the ones that were slow. These requests did such and such amount of time in database functions and such and such amount of time not in IO kinds of states and be able to go from it's slow to some resources exhausted to the kinds of requests that seem to be using those resources to maybe the version of the software or the EC2 instance class or something that's unique about those requests to actually have some actionable way to fix it. And that's the tying together that I think makes something an observability system instead of a hodgepodge of logs and metrics, is the ability to connect the thing that's wrong, the resource that's exhausted to the user behaviors or requests or APIs or something that's responsible.
0: That totally makes sense to me. Was there anything at Slack that you had that you felt was something really cool that others, I don't know, should be
1: doing or that, that aren't doing or you know maybe don't have the resources to do? So in the earliest days of Slack, 2014 when I joined, 2013 when there was sort of a beta version of Slack out there, the company was actually already four and change years old because they'd built a video game called Glitch before that. And when they spun down Glitch, what they decided to work on next was basically Slack. And it was trying to realize the way that they worked via their cobbled together IRC server with lots of extensions and, and APIs and search engines and things make that available as a product. And so they took the game technology, importantly, the game technology, not IRC, and made Slack. And because that company was already so old, they started using AWS in 2009 because they didn't want to be data center people. And in 2009, broadly speaking, none of us knew any better. So we had one big honking AWS account. And for the longest time at Slack, because it was just not the most urgent thing to do, even after I knew that it was a good idea, We had one AWS account and the costs there in terms of security and reliability were significant, but never like the thing that we needed to fix. So later, when we started to build some more systems that had very different sensitivity of the data, very different requirements for how isolated they were from other parts of Slack, a team down in Melbourne, Australia, had put together... What they called Project White Castle, name I never understood, that was our plan of record for using what was new at the time in in AWS, shared VPCs, and a bunch of other tooling that they were writing themselves to make using lots of AWS accounts a reality. And that was such a powerful, profound experience that I did what I usually do when I left Slack and I thought about what we did well and poorly that I'd like to sort of take another crack at. And what I came up with, sort of hustled along by some friends, companies who who hired me to consult with them on building infrastructure in AWS, is an idea for how I could get more companies to realize the security and reliability and compliance benefits of having lots of AWS accounts without the sometimes very intimidating... And, and real costs of having lots of AWS accounts. And so that's how a piece of software called Substrate was born. And Substrate began its life as consulting where, where I would wield this software to make myself a more efficient, more effective consultant. But I realized later on that this was a, a product, a software product all its own. And that's what I do now, I develop and sell Substrate. It admittedly has, when you first look at it, a sort of one thing led to another feature list in architecture, but there is sort of a, a full rationale for why everything is in there and why nothing else is in there. Because nobody goes around looking for, <laughs> I need to use lots of AWS accounts. Let me find some software to help with that. Like there's some people that have heard that they should do that. There's some people who have experienced it and they're true believers and they're just, they're gonna go do that. But the problems people face are not, I have a bunch of AWS accounts and I need to do something with them. The problems are I'm struggling to write I am policies that make any sense that I can maintain and that actually have some semblance of re- least privilege I'm struggling to keep services and environments isolated from each other so that I don't break one thing when I change a different thing I'm struggling to keep things isolated so that my auditor is actually convinced that dev and production are different things and in AWS due to a you could call it a strange accident of history, or you could call it a wonderful testament to backwards compatibility. The way you solve all of those things is by having lots of AWS accounts. And I've I've compared AWS and GCP a lot, uh, incidentally, over, over the years, and especially over the last few months. And, and there's perfect truth in, in the argument that a lot of GCP's tooling around isolation and service boundaries and things is better. It's better thought out than AWS. And my comeback to that is always that it's pretty well designed right now, but AWS being weird and having accounts mean something more like a, a, you know, a blast radius zone or something like that. It's just, it's weird. And that's how you know that it's gonna be around for you later. It's weird because it was the right thing to do then and they're absolutely committed to the APIs still working, the systems maintaining their function. And so AWS has added and expanded what you can do with an account and what you can do with many accounts without pulling the rug out from under anybody who had something working in 2009 and expects it to still be working.
0: That's really fascinating. So when you mentioned the auditor example of like convincing an auditor, that really kind of hits home for me. Not, well, in part because we're actually like doing audits and stuff now, like security audits. That's like a new thing for us, like uh, recently at at Norit Inc. But also because I've thought about Like, what are the sort of heuristics for how you know that something is actually isolated from something else? And when you're thinking about it at, like, the individual program level, you know, this is where I get into, like, pure functions are awesome. And, like, especially if your language enforces them and yada, yada, you just know which things can possibly depend on others at a higher level of confidence. And it seems like when it comes to, like, cloud infrastructure in particular, you have kind of an analogy there with an account where it's like, well, very obviously, AWS is not going to allow accounts to just reach in and modify other accounts. That would be ludicrous. Like, uh, oh, I can just, I can actually just access Slack's account, right? That's fine. Like, of course not. So there's this very strong guarantee of like, yeah, these are not going to be able to touch one another by defaults.
1: And that's the, that's the word. Defaults really matter. And in addition to defaults really mattering, what's easy to do versus harder to do really matters. And within one AWS account, if you haven't run into this already, you will. AWS user, generic AWS user of the world, it's really easy to give some actor, some principal, some user, some role that a server has. It's really easy to give them access to all the resources of a certain type in an account to the point that that's that's kind of the default that you don't really think about. People spend a lot of time thinking about what APIs you're allowed to use, but not what resources you're allowed to touch, which is harder and not terribly well covered over the whole surface area of the AWS API. In contrast, as you said, like you can't cross accounts by default. You make explicit decisions to cross accounts when that's what your application needs. And that, that default and it being easy to grant cross account access in a way that's understandable, whereas it's hard to constrain what resources something can access, That's why this is such a powerful pattern. So, I mean, it sounds like I'm guessing GCP maybe makes it easier to
0: constrain resources than AWS. I have no experience with GCP at all. But at the same time, at the end of the day, there's this question of like, but do you want it to be better at X or Y? Or do you want to just bring out the sledgehammer and say like, these are different accounts and these just like by default cannot share anything at all, including resources, you know, whatever unless I explicitly opt into saying, okay, you can you know, jump over the, the boundary there for just the things that I, I say are okay. And I guess for something like development, like staging versus production, I'm guessing that you probably want there to be no jumping over at all.
1: That is typically the way, and certainly the exceptions there should be rare and should be incredibly clear and certainly not accidental. And that's why separating things into many AWS accounts makes such a a clear case. It's a cloud infrastructure variation of there being obviously no bugs instead of no obvious bugs.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny if I were to guess like, hey, what's the big thing that, you know, your takeaway from six years at Slack from 20 employees to 2200 employees? What's the big thing that you learned about infrastructure? It's like, Multiple AWS accounts, lots and lots of AWS accounts.
1: Not what I would have guessed. (laughs) I, I certainly wouldn't say that's the one thing, but it is the one thing that I'm acting on. It is the one thing that I'm out there evangelizing because I think a lot of the other things that I learned are lessons that many other people have learned in very much the same ways. And that knowledge is getting pretty broadly distributed by other channels, by other people. But time and time again, I see a startup choose to use AWS, end up with one big AWS account that has everything in it, and know that every day that ticks by makes their future problem of untangling that a little bit harder. And I understand why people make that decision. I've heard it so clearly put as, we don't even know if we're going to be around in a year. Why would we invest in that. And I hear it. I do. I often reply that you should have a little more belief in yourself, that you should, you should really believe you're going to be around in a year. And you should at least try a little bit to make future use life. Okay. And so while nobody needs to build the architecture to serve, you know, amazon.com level traffic right out of the gate, I do think having the infrastructure in place to get to that, out of the gate is important because doing multiple accounts right from the beginning is pretty easy. And that's really why I have built the tools that I've built is to really drive home that this attainable and easy. And the benefit later of not having to do a massively invasive airlift and, and replatforming is really something. So substrate has a a feature list that looks a little bit like one thing led to another. But if I may, I want to walk through exactly why it is the way that it is. Um, Because I think the set of features that it encapsulates address the problems people have with using multiple AWS accounts so that they can start using them immediately and have an organization that will grow with them for a decade or more. So when you imagine yourself, Richard Feldman, having multiple AWS accounts. The first thing you probably think of is, oh, that's going to be tedious to have multiple IAM users and second factors and passwords and all of that stuff. And so the first thing that Substrate helps someone do is not do that, to create an administrative access account. I call it the admin account for short, that sets up a relationship with your identity provider like Google or Okta so that you don't log in with an IAM user to all these accounts. You have an identity provider account and the way into AWS, the only way into AWS is via that identity provider. And that means that everybody already has their passworded, they already have their second factor. And Substrate gives you tools to get into AWS in the console and the command line with short lived credentials so that you also don't have those scary long lived access keys sitting on your laptop. So now you're into AWS, you have credentials that can do something in AWS. And in fact, that identity provider assigns what role you have. So the exact things you can do are up to you. And what you actually do in that admin account is you you move to another AWS account. And I use the metaphor of moving. What you're really doing is trading credentials in one account for credentials in another account via the assume role API. But the idea of moving between accounts is that once you're in AWS, you can continue with these short-lived credentials. Continue with a, a very auditable, clear, controlled path, and this is where you can go from your admin account to either staging or production, but you can't go between staging and production directly. So that so you're only you're only logged into one, exactly one of these sort of sub accounts at a time in the browser. Due to limitations in the AWS console, yes in your terminal if you have 17 terminals they could each be in 17 different accounts because it is just environment variables this
0: actually reminds you like brief tangent so uh one of the things that we do at no Red right inc is we have like a sort of a pseudo role uh that's like you know as an s-u-d-o and like i guess some people pronounce it sudo which like makes more sense but it looks like it's pronounced sudo so that's just like one of these like okay you have sort of access to do this like you're you're allowed to do this but We really want you to like sort of upgrade your permission level in order to confirm that you actually intend to be messing with this, you know, potential production facing thing. What do you think of that? Is that something that you've done
1: or I think that kind of explicit I'm about to go into danger mode is really nice. Oftentimes in my world today, that is served by making the move into a production account. Now, it's also possible to have multiple roles in a production account. And in fact, Substrate manages one called Auditor that is read-only and one called Administrator, which is do anything at once. So you can choose to go be Auditor if you just want to poke around and survey the scene. And then you can switch to Administrator and say, I'm, I'm ready to make a change. It's going to be scary. Buckle up. And give yourself that guardrail. But that's only the beginning. You can set up all sorts of other roles that you can sort of pick the level of scariness that you want to bestow upon yourself as you're, as you're moving about. And there are other tools out there in the world, I should say, that specialize in more exotic rules, like having two-person rules around assuming administrative roles. And, and I'm not playing in that space right now. I think those are very cool, especially when you can sort of delegate the management of who has those roles and who's allowed to do the, the approvals and things to someone besides the IT team. I think that kind of self-service is really powerful. So you you mentioned like the auditor role. I'm guessing that like, based on the name, one of the
0: use cases here is literally you have a security auditor coming in. You want to give them access to stuff where they can't actually change anything and just see things. But it sounds like actually maybe another common use for this might be, I'm working on a production outage or some sort of incident. And I want to start by just poking around while my, my heart rate's up and not have the ability to like accidentally break something worse and have to actually like explicitly switch accounts. Are there other use cases like that beyond just like literal auditors that you'd recommend?
1: I think those are both very, very common use cases. The other, I'd say most common use case is a situation in which you want folks to have very broad access to development and very limited access to production. And I have found very few situations in which people draw a really clean line Anywhere in between full access and read-only access that that holds up over time.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So I, this is something I've always wondered about too. It, it's sort of like you know companies with <laughs> bigger infrastructure and bigger infrastructure needs is like how granular do production permissions get? Because if you're responding to an incident, there's an argument that's like you got to be able to touch everything. But then at the same time, there's an argument of Okay, well, you need some sort of, you know, for for like privacy reasons, for example, you need some things to say, like, you can spin up this database or spin it down, but you can't look inside of it. And I've always wondered to what extent that applies to infrastructure specifically. Like, do you want to say things like these people at the company have permission to spin up and down these databases and these other people do not? I can certainly imagine that, for example, if you're at like Google and you have, you know, enormous number of employees, an enormous number of which are working on infrastructure, maybe you don't want every single one of them to have the ability to like take down all the production databases. You know, like somebody has a really bad day, they could really cost Google like a billion dollars, you know, on their way out the door. But I I just have no sense of like what's, I don't know, what's out there. Like what do do companies do at that scale somewhere between five person startup and Google?
1: I think some of this is driven by the promises that we make to our customers. And I don't only mean that in a compliance sort of a sense. It's it's broader than compliance. It's It's about your relationship with your customers and the sensitivity of the data that they're entrusting to you. So somewhat common thing in my mind is to try to deny sort of a standing, easy access to customer data in production while still allowing administrative access. And so One example from Slack is that we had a very complex computer-generated series of grants against all the production databases that allowed all of our engineers access to select basically everything except password hashes, API keys, and the actual message and file content that people uploaded. So you could access in a message row, you could access the channel ID, the timestamp of the message, the user ID who sent it, and so on. But you couldn't get the message field that had the JSON object that described the message and all of its attachments and structures and everything. And that meant that we could get in and figure out mostly what was going on, why was a query slow, things like that understanding, oh, actually, this is evaluating 7 million rows. No wonder it's slow. But we couldn't get the data out of it because the data, like no customer cares about the channel ID. They care about the data in that channel. And so having those kinds of rules was important to our ability to keep debugging the site while earning our customers' trust by being able to credibly show we didn't have standing access to their message data.
0: Now, this is interesting because I I know that like some people... And you know, let's say for the sake of argument that you know this is a someone has written an article on Hacker News talking about you know this like level of access. Somebody's probably going to comment. This is just like the TSA saying they only collect metadata, and you're spying on me because if you see that I sent a message to this channel at this time that's enough to figure out that I, you know, am, I don't know, doing something or whatever. But so I'm curious, you know, how do you think about like drawing the line there? I'm sure there was some discussion at some point of like, where do we draw that line? And you could make the argument, well, let's not even allow access to that metadata about like who sent what to what channel and what time, even if we're redacting the, the message contents. And you could also make an argument that. Maybe you shouldn't give people access to run raw SQL queries at all. You should force it to go through some sort of anonymizer, scrambler, whatever. But of course, at the same time, when you're responding to a production incident, every tool that you have at your disposal gives you the ability to potentially resolve the incident faster. So if I'm a Slack user and I'm like, which one do I you know prioritize more. For me personally I'm like yeah just put out the fire, but others may feel differently.
1: Well we had a lot of those kinds of tools and the problem with those kinds of tools is that they tend to be down when the application that you're debugging is down too. So there needs to be both is ultimately where I'd go with that. And there's a you didn't set this up knowingly but you did set it up perfectly. There's a, an example of of having that that debate about where we draw the line and it concerns those channel IDs. So perhaps obviously in the database you use an integer not the literal name of a channel but for a while, initially, channel names were not part of the redacted bits of the database. So uh, an engineer at Slack could see channel names. And we thought that this was a risk. We didn't love this because you can imagine all sorts of very sensitive channel names if someone happens to see you know, X acquiring Y as a channel name. Like, <laughs> Oh, sure. That's the, that kind of thing moves markets. So we needed to get that gone. But... We needed first to get those channel names out of the URLs because the channel name was part of the URL to the web application for that channel. So first we had to change the application to use channel IDs in the URLs. Then we could remove an engineer's access to channel ID and make everything better because there there was no path left in which the engineer already knew the channel name and needed to query by it. There was no need to reconstruct from the database what someone was seeing in their browser. And so we could make a better security decision, a better access decision by changing the application.
0: Wow, I would not have thought of that. That's a really good example, though, of like, yeah, you you have a, a just the, the name of a channel and knowing who's posting in it, it tells you, yeah, potentially very sensitive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good example of why uh, <laughs> metadata could be uh could be really impactful, even if you're redacting to everything else.
1: Another thing that I worked on at Slack was a a feature called EKM. It stood theoretically for enterprise key management, but it was by whatever acronym the mechanism that someone could bring their own encryption keys from Amazon KMS in their own AWS account and Slack would use them to encrypt message data for them. And we ran that in its own AWS account. We turned off SSH access to the computers that ran that service to deny ourselves to the very best of our ability all access to the actual keys that were being used to encrypt folks' messages. And having a separate AWS account there was, was really helpful because we could really, really control that only the computers were allowed to use the customer's access keys. The engineers at Slack were not allowed to sort of go manually interact with a customer's AWS act, uh, key management service. And that, again, put us in a better security posture in terms of what our engineers had standing access to do. And we could draw that line because it was in its own account. And I know that I keep coming back to this idea because I really am evangelizing that I think more folks should have lots of accounts. And one of the things that I remember being difficult about that was that you kind of had to magically know the 12-digit account number to get in there. And so when I was describing before, once you're in via your identity provider, you move to other accounts. And my next observation in Substrate was that naming things is really important. We all know it's a hard problem, but by giving AWS accounts names, like by the, the domain of service that they're serving, you know, the service or the service group or the team that owns them or something, the environment that they're a part of, it gives you the ability to name accounts and go there without knowing their account numbers without copy pasting and then moving around the organization is something that's understandable. You know you're in production because you just told it to go to production. And that that context is really important in being able to move around. And then when you have this tooling you can move around. You start to create more AWS accounts. And having lots of accounts to serve parts of the same application then means you're probably going to want to, you know, kind of pull them back together into one cohesive whole. So if you're running your marketing website, your API, your data ingestion, and something else in four different accounts to serve your production application, they do need to communicate and coordinate. So the, the last major thing that Substrate does for you is to give you a network where all those things can communicate and do normal security group kind of firewalling via Amazon's nifty shared VPC pattern. That's fascinating. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, which was, so you
0: had a production machine that nobody could SSH into lots. (laughs) (laughs) Like now that you say it, I mean, it seems like, Oh yeah, of course, at some point, you know, you get to a level where you can do that. But to me, that just sounds frightening. (laughs) Not, not being able to SSH in and and poke around and and mess with stuff. If you, if you have an incident. So that was the only way that you could touch those things with like terraform or something like that. Or, I mean, how did you, what do you do if there's an incident on one of those?
1: Well, so Yes, you could touch those clusters with Terraform. But I think the more direct answer to your question is, in case of incident, it's about how you are actually to able to observe that system. You can't SSH in and strace things or memory dump stuff. You can't log in and run HTOP. You need that observation to be brought to you in some other way. So the software was written in Go. So it was exporting CPU profile data it was allowing you to attach remote debuggers and things it had a lot of telemetry about the health of its key caching and its latencies of of working with amazon kms and whenever something was uncertain confusing and we'd go you know we'd read the code we'd try to figure out you know the best that we could do to solve it and add more telemetry to those systems to better observe next time what was going on and it's a constant constant struggle to keep, you know, imagining things that might be useful in an incident that you don't understand the nature of ahead of time. But the alternative was just an an untrustworthy service. So there was no alternative there that was workable, uh, because earning the trust of the people who were demanding that access to their encryption keys, that was Job one. This is
0: amazing. I, I'm sure we could, we could talk about this for another hour. But uh, anything else we should uh, we should make sure to cover before we wrap up?
1: I guess to finish my delightfully chunked up story of this substrate software is is that what I'm really enjoying finding with a lot of startups is that when they start using AWS, there's a pretty clear understanding of what it is they're trying to build and what you know even at the outset what their sort of customers are going to be demanding you know whether if they're selling to businesses they understand the general level of paranoia amongst those customers and having tools available to help them access to manage access to AWS to demonstrate to customers that they're being good shepherds of their data and that they're building a reliable system that's going to be there for them uh, like I, I love helping the small companies get a head start on that stuff, because it really does pay dividends down the road when you not only start fast, but then stay fast because you're never reworking the architecture that you started with from absolute ground up. Certainly, certainly you'll rework things, you'll find limits, but I like to provide a strong foundation for people to work on.
0: Yeah, makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, now that you talk about it and like how common of a practice, I guess this is at bigger companies, it kind of makes me wonder like, you know, how there could be like a void like this for so long where where nobody has built a thing like this when, like you said, there are so many other like lessons learned and, and things like that that are just repeated over and over from companies that go through this.
1: I think, you know, Amazon themselves are extreme outliers in this in the same way that we at Slack were extreme outliers in how we used Slack. So like an employee at AWS probably has a dozen or more personal AWS accounts all their own that they they use as as throwaway containers for whatever teams will often have dozens or hundreds to deploy even a single service and and that's normal for them but they've been doing that since 2006ish organizations the ability for one account to have many accounts in it the APIs for creating accounts only launched in 2017 and the API for closing an account only launched this year so this is sort of new practice in a lot of meaningful ways. And so the tooling catches up, the practice catches up, and I hope that I can save a lot of folks a lot of heavy re-architecture work down the road. Nice.
0: Well, I hope so too. Yeah, this is, this is a very cool idea. And uh, I'm very interested to see uh, like to, to what extent people start adopting it in industry because, yeah, I mean, the, the rationale makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Well, excellent. This has been fun. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, and uh, yeah, I'll have to chat again sometime.
1: Would love to.